Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for, for coming along. Uh, what I want to do this afternoon is explore two things. I want to explore your teaching and I want to explore the subjects that you teach. I know that's quite difficult because you all teach different things, all from different subjects, all different levels and different places. So you're going to have to do most of the work. Okay? So if you want to leave now, then now's your chance because you're going to be doing the work on me. Um, so, technology. Those are the two things I'm going to look at. And what I'm interested in is the way things are structured, the way links are made between ideas. And the tool that I've used for that is concept mapping, which some of you may or may not have come across. This is nothing to do with mind mapping, okay? Mind mapping is simply putting ideas down on paper very quickly so you can remember them. Concept mapping is a much slower, more reflective tool, and it's hard to do it really well. It's easy to pick up the idea. We can teach it to primary school kids to do it. But to do it really well, and to really explain something in detail that is complicated is quite hard. So your brains are going to have to work a bit in a minute. So we're going to start off by answering that question. So wherever you teach, and whatever you teach, what are the major issues that impact upon that teaching? Maybe for the good, maybe for bad, maybe they restrict your practice, maybe they enhance your practice. Doesn't really matter. Now rather than just have a free-for-all and come up with 50,000 ideas, I'm going to limit you, okay? I'm going to limit you to those. So what I want you to do is to choose four of those words, and you can interpret those words however you like, don't mind. Um, and then I'm going to give you a present, something that will change your lives forever. The most underestimated piece of technology of the 20th century. That's a post-it note. Okay, so, can you catch? You're on the netball team. Oh, you know. Come on, throw it, come on. Catch, 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 catch. Catch, back. Catch. 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 So choose four of these and write one on each of the four posting notes. Okay? <laughs> Anybody not got access to a poster note? Yeah, I do. One on each of four. Have you got some, got some Andrew? Uh, no, we need some more. We could do some more. Here we are. Please run out. We've got, got some. Okay. We've oh, been resourceful. Okay. I need to one. Okay. Okay, so you've all chosen four items which you've identified as being key issues in your teaching. 
That's the easy bit. Now comes the difficult bit, is to arrange them. And that's where your piece of paper comes in. So if you haven't got a piece of paper or paper, there's some here, you can give it. It can go on there. You can put it on any strip you like. I want you to arrange the four things that you've selected in one of those three ways on your page to emphasise the connections between them. Because having four isolated ideas doesn't help us very much. What we need to know is how those ideas influence or affect each other. you're working in a multitask and listen to me a little bit. If you just think about what's going on in the room here at the moment, you have just behaved like pretty much every class that I've ever used concept maps with. Because as soon as you start the task, there is silence. All you hear is post-it notes going up and down, pens flipping. And I've done this in a lecture theatre with 400 undergraduates and you get exactly the same, you get silence. Because the task is difficult. You've got to think about it. To justify your selection and to put the maximum amount of explanation into those links with as few words as possible. So what are the key words that link them?
interesting because nobody in this room knew the right answer before they came in. Nobody in this room is copying anybody else beside them, because you can't. So it's quite a good task, like individuals think. Richard's holding his head because he's got pain there. <laughs> now, of course, I'm, I'm making assumptions here that all of you, if not most of you, teach in some way. So you're used to teaching, you're used to moaning about things that influence your teaching or celebrating things that influence your teaching. So this is not a new discussion in a way. Sort of rehearsed discussion. You've been rehearsing it probably for years, some of you. So presumably you'd be quite happy if I took in your maps, put your name to it, and put them all on the internet. That'd be okay? No, it's friends now. It's quite interesting. Um, you know, when, when I talk to students at, at Surrey and they they map something which they should know really well. And I say, well, now you've got the map. Can I put that on your on your um, homepage on your website? And they're looking horror. No, 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 it's not. Why not? Well, it might not be right, and I'm not sure it is right, and I want to think about it. And that's absolutely fine, because of course there is no answer here. There is no top answer. Um, some of you may not be very experienced teachers and not really know much about teaching and therefore you're not sure what to put down. Or maybe the issue in your teaching is actually you just don't know the subject very well yet. Or that you've got a rotten head department. Or something else. Or that you, you know, the buses don't run at the right time for you to get to class. Could be anything. But what I've done today is to pick some terms that have come out of some research that I've done. Um, with university teachers, I would admit, rather than school teachers, about the things that affect and influence their teaching. Do you want to just have a minute to swap your map with someone sitting next to you and explain your map to them and have a look at theirs and see what's different? Or we'll see if you've got over that. Thank 
Just looking at the morphology that you use is quite interesting sometimes. Because people, and this is a gross generalisation, so if, it's, if I'm offending you and say, no, that's not me, that's not what I meant, that's fine. But this is the sort of thing you can have a discussion about later. People who go for this sort of shape generally see teaching as a process, a sequence, a recipe, a formula, those sorts of things. Those are words that come out of interviews when people are doing that sort of thing. People who have this, with nothing joining here, are very often, but not always, new to teaching. They know this is related, and this is related, and this is related, but they're not quite sure how. Now, I know I've not given you very much time today, and so it wouldn't be fair to categorise you in this way, but this is what we tend to find. People with lots of links tend to, tend to be really reflective people who are thinking about things, agonising about things, but of course we have to think about what it is that you've put in your maps. Which of those you actually chose? So very quick show of hands. How many people chose ability? Okay, quite a few, more than I thought. Adapt. Ooh, not very many. Not very popular that. Autonomy. A few. Change. Fewer than I thought. Okay. Complex. Just a couple. Environment. <coughs> quite a lot. Evidence. Yeah, integrate, management, fantastic, professional, couple, regulation, yeah, few, rewards, ooh, nobody chose rewards, 
That's an interesting one. Stress. Okay, a few other thoughts. Sustainable. No, not sustainability, okay. And values. Lots. Okay, that's interesting. But across the room, there isn't any particular consensus here. You haven't all put your hands up in the same few. You've all taken different things. And presumably, if we were to analyze them, we've all linked them in various different personal idiosyncratic ways. So when you teach in your department and you talk to your colleagues, have you got any idea how they view teaching? What issues they've got? Or do you assume that they've got the same little map in their head that you've just got? Because what tends to happen, in my experience, certainly at universities, is when you have teaching committee meetings and departmental meetings, we talk about things like budgets and rooming and salaries and staffing levels and furniture and exciting stuff like that. Hardly ever do we talk about things like values or teaching strategies or learning strategies. That doesn't seem to come up. So our discourse, our discussions are all skewed towards the practical mechanistic bits of teaching. And the other bits, the important bits, are sort of assumed and given. Yeah, we all agree on what's important, don't we? But we probably don't. What I've just got you to do is a very abridged activity that I've done with a number of colleagues at Surrey and at King's as well, where I've got them to expand about the issues they've got in teaching. And rather than give them five minutes and four of these, basically what I give them is two hours with me interrogating them. Um, not saying if you got it right, if you got it wrong, but saying, what do you mean by that? Can you expand upon that? What's it linked to? How do you explain that to somebody else? So just imagine you've got somebody new in your department and you're mentoring them. How are you going to help them cope with the issues they have about teaching and learning? Because how, first of all, how do you know what issues they're going to have? We all know that people have got issues once they become a crisis, but that's a different sort of management. How do we anticipate what issues a newcomer to the profession is going to have, and how can we head them off of the pass, if you like, so that they don't go through that crisis period? Or we can manage it, at least. This is the model I've been working with. And for those of you who don't teach in higher education, apologies, because the, the, the language is very higher education. But I think it sort of fits other forms of education as well. We coined the term pedagogic frailty. And that's because we've taken the analogy with clinical frailty, where if you become frail clinically, your ability to respond to minor changes becomes impaired. Right? We've probably all seen colleagues whose ability to respond in minor changes in the department becomes impaired. Suddenly you've changed the marking criteria and they throw a complete wobble, you can't cope anymore. Or suddenly you've gone to something is online and it wasn't. And again, they throw a complete wobble, you can't do that, can't cope, too much pressure. And what we've identified is four key areas. Dum, 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 dum. The regulative discourse. So what do you talk about? What do you talk about as a department, as a faculty, as a group, as a discipline, 
Do you talk about timetables and budgets? Boring stuff, is my view. Or do you talk about students and learning and the exciting stuff? And critically, do you have a shared set of values? And you can interpret that however you like. You know, what are the values that drive your department or your institution? Is it money? Just want to get in the foreign students and get that money? Or is it something else? The pedagogy and the discipline. How close is the teaching of your subject to the subject? Is it authentic? And my little analogy here is dear old Wayne. If you were going to decide whether or not Wayne really should play for England in the next match, would you get him to write an essay detailing why he should? Making somebody fail then, have an inauthentic assessment. Okay? Um, but you see what I mean? If the practice in the classroom has got nothing to do with what you're actually teaching, you think, oh, where's a disconnect here? What are we doing here? Why are we doing this? But what if to get onto all football teams you have to write an essay? <laughs> That'd be madness, wouldn't it? Yeah, but that is the madness we face. The, with the, we are assessing students in a way that don't reflect their learning, but we have to prepare them for these assessments that are crazy in our eyes, but a much bigger system is telling us to do that. Okay, so you've identified a key stressor then, okay, that somebody's saying, assess them in this way, mm -hmm. and you're saying, but it's nuts. Okay. Research teaching nexus, or the, or the practice teaching nexus, depending on what you teach and where you teach it. So is the practice of the discipline, the research of the discipline, again, as is set, and my example here has done some burnout. In teaching schools, I taught science in schools for a long time, and you spend the first week usually uh, teaching them all about Bunsen burner, how to use it, different colour flames, you draw it, you heat stuff up, and all the rest of it. And when kids then go on their tour of the university and they go to the chemistry department, they say, Where are all the Bunsen burners? And the chemists say, We don't use Bunsen burners, we haven't done for 30 or 40 years. Oh, so why do we spend so long in schools teaching about bugs and burners then? Well, because historically it's important. But it's not part of modern science. People do not spend time at university detailing about blue flames and yellow flames and all the rest of it like we do at school. So again, there's a mismatch there. The locus of control. Who's telling you what to do? Dear old Mr. Gove. It's come up in something, hasn't it? Do you have a voice? Who is controlling stuff? Who is controlling stuff that matters? Some of the control may be way distant from where you are working. But much of the local control about how you teach and how much you're going to talk to the students and whether you get them to do an experiment or a practical or a role play or just sit and read the book is up to you. So you've got some degree of control some control is taken away from you, wherever you teach. But what is your voice? Do you have somewhere where you can go and say, this isn't right, these assessments are nuts, we need to change them? Or do you have no voice at all? Certainly at university, the students seem to have a lot of voice. And if they say something is really bad, then the whole next year it's not there. And then the next year students say, where is it? We want it back. So it comes back in again. 
Some of the people I've done this process with have ended up with something like that as the overall map of their view of frailty in their particular situation. A couple of the people I've interviewed have ended up in floods of tears. Not because of me, I don't think, but because of what they've revealed to themselves on the page. I mean, this particular person, after she'd written the word helpless, she looked at it for five minutes and said, God, if I really said that, is that really how I feel? And then the tears came down, of course. So, we seem to have two opposites here, the helplessness and the resilience. We have members of staff who feel helpless. They feel they can't change stuff. They feel they can't do what they want to do in class. They can't do the assessments they want. They can't go out on the nature ramble anymore because you've got to do 58 risk assessments just to go out the door. All those sorts of things. How much time do you talk about resilience? How much energy do you put in beefing up our teaching staff so that they are resilient members of staff? rather than people who are all sick every two weeks because they can't cope. I would suggest that resilience is a word that doesn't feature enough when it comes to staff support. It does feature in the literature about students, not surprisingly. So developing resilience amongst students is there in the literature. Developing resilience amongst teachers is not so prominent. And it looks to me like a real omission, because if we're not developing resilient staff, then they leave. They go and work in the bank, or they go and work at McDonald's, or they do something else. So you can see the sort of thing, when, when you have this sort of free-form activity, a bit like the one you've done today, this is the sort of thing people come up with to summarise their view of what's impacting on their teaching. What do we mean by resilience? Well, again, you can unpack that. So... About resilience, you know. How do you develop resilience? What do we mean by resilience? And again, if it's not part of the discourse of the department or the institution, it's something that needs to be explored bit by bit, rather than just say, right, today's workshop on resilience, and at the end of it, you're going to be resilient and go away. Because that's not going to happen. So, the one I like is the rebounding one at the top. Uh, how do we get people to be tiggers rather than eators? Uh, okay, so we've got plenty of eators, but we need more tiggers, basically. Uh, some of the tiggers, of course, are just a pain, and we wish they'd stop bouncing so much, but mostly we want more tiggers. Okay, so that's your teaching. Now your discipline, what you teach, your subject. So some questions there just to think about for a moment while I take a swig of water. When I'm teaching a staff at Surrey, one of the questions I ask is, how is your discipline structured? And people look at me and say, what do you want about? And then they start saying things like, well, we've got a dean, and then we've got heads of department. I say, no, it's not really discipline, is it? That's the management structure. But how is your discipline structured? And then someone will say, well, I teach chemistry, so we've got organic and inorganic. Okay, good start. But then somebody who teaches politics, how is that structured? How is sociology structured? How is translation studies structured? The scientists at this point seem to have the edge. 
we should be quite happy about the structure of the discipline. Those in the humanities and social sciences, the sciences seem less convinced and comfortable about the structure of their discipline. It's a generalisation. Next question, what are the major concepts within your discipline? Have you ever seen on YouTube the five-minute university? No. Okay, so something to Google, five-minute university on YouTube, everyone. And the guy, basically, what he says is, I can teach you in five minutes or less everything you need to know from any subject, because that is what a graduate will remember five years after they graduate. It's their master's program as well. <laughs> so it's a little bit tongue in cheek. And he'll say, you know, obviously <coughs> economics is only one thing you need to remember. It's a fine amount. That's all anyone ever remembers from economics. Okay? And he goes on and on and on and talks about other, other disciplines as well. But what are the major topics? What are the major subjects in your discipline? Because they're the ones around which your discipline rotates and is structured. So if you think about your own discipline, can you name the four or five top concepts? The biggest ideas. So my home discipline was biology. So for me, it's very easy to name the top concept. For me, it's evolution. If you understand evolution, then everything else in biology starts to fall into place. I can't say that in Kansas. It lynched me. Because you're not allowed to teach evolution in Kansas. But for most disciplines, I think you could do the same thing. You could identify what is the key thing. And for those of you into the education literature, we're talking here about threshold concepts. The Ray Land and Eric Mayer stuff, if you haven't read that. But then how are the ideas connected? It's all very well having three or four top ideas. But how do they interact with each other? How are they related? Back to chemistry. How is organic and inorganic chemistry related? Presumably it is somewhere, somewhere along the line. And then crucially, once you've decided all this, how is it made explicit in the curriculum? And I think today with modules, it is even more difficult than it used to be. Because many of the students look at the module, and then once the module paper has gone, it goes and you look at the next module. And they never see the discipline as a whole. I have a real beef with curriculum documentation. Because you look at most curriculum documents, they tend to have long lists of content. Completely undifferentiated. You can't tell which is the important stuff and which isn't. All you can tell is which will be in Lectures 1 and which will be in Lecture 48. But actually, the relative importance and the interconnections between the two are largely missing in curriculum documentation. And yet we anticipate that at the end of the curriculum, the students will have made all those links intuitively even though we haven't coloured any of them in for students. So is your discipline a bit like that? So talking to people in politics, for example, if there's a politician in here, you might argue with me, but they'll tell me, well, you can study US politics and you can study UK politics. You can study them completely separately. You don't have to link them because they are separate ideas. One doesn't come after the other. They're not necessarily linked. You talk to a physicist, and they'll say, you've got to know everything to know anything, because it's all linked. You can't know one bit of physics on its own, it doesn't make any sense. You've got to know the whole thing. Mm. And so, again, I direct you to the work of, of Janet Donald, 
who's done some work here. Um, again, generalizing, she suggested that the sciences are highly integrated, whereas the arts and humanities are not. They are structured in a very different way. And I have summarized that very briefly, but if you read her book, very persuasive argument there. Within your su subject, whatever your subject happens to be, how do you structure the information for students? And how do you want the students to present that information? So I don't know if we've got any artists in the room. Uh, into Fauve landscapes. And if you don't know what the Fauve landscape is, it doesn't matter possibly, because we've got three concept maps here telling you what it is. But there are three qualitatively very different concept maps. The one at the top basically just says, includes this, includes this, includes this, includes this. It's a list. It's a pictorial list, but it is just a list. It doesn't really tell you much. This one, this chain, makes sense as a chain, but the items in there don't really make a lot of sense on their own. And you can't really elaborate on that chain either. Whereas if you analyse this map, if you understand that map, then you've probably got a really a reasonable appreciation of Fauve art. So what I would say is, um, this one's got a high degree of explanatory power. The student who's produced that can probably stand up on his hind legs and talk about Fauve art for five minutes. The one who produced that probably couldn't tell you very much. So they've both answered the question, but the quality of the answers are very, very different. So in order to get these different structures, we've got to teach for them. So if a kid, student, whoever, comes in, he's got prior knowledge, however that prior knowledge is organised. We've then got to decide how we're going to teach. Are we going to teach this way, by giving lots of stuff, lots of information to memorise? Or are we going to teach this way, giving them procedures and sequences to memorise? And in some cases, this is absolutely appropriate. If you're teaching um, a nurse how to give an injection, there is a sequence to know in order to do it properly. Or are we doing this? Are we emphasising the links between the concepts that they've got? Maybe adding the extra concept here or there, but actually emphasising on the links between ideas rather than just giving them more ideas all the time. I would suggest that most institutions are pretty good at doing this, spend a lot of our time doing it, maybe a little of our time doing this, not much of our time doing that. That's more difficult to assess for a start, takes some imagination. This you can assess multiple choice questions, you know, you know what happened in 1066, this, this or this, <coughs> that kind of learning. But not why it happened in 1066, or what the repercussions were. And you can see, this is what happens to students if we teach them by giving them information to memorise. So here we've got, on a pharmaceutical degree, this is what the student knew before the module was taught. At the end of the module, he knew more, but it's still not very well integrated. He has collected stuff. He's not really understood stuff. One more idea, the spiral curriculum model, which I have great arguments about with various people. Because they say, oh yeah, we've got a spiral curriculum in our department, so it's fantastic, everything's okay, we've got spiral curriculum, yeah, spiral curriculum, solves everything. 
I said, well, how does it solve everything? Because there's a major problem with the SPARM curriculum, and the major problem is that you are revisiting content periodically, possibly every year. If you haven't structured that content in year one so that it is ready to receive year two, it won't. And what you will end up is students saying, well, that's not what you told us last year. Or, we did this last year, you don't need to go over it again. Those are the sort of comments you get. So you need to teach this year, if you're going to teach it again next year, in a way that the knowledge structure will receive new knowledge. Those chains that we saw before don't receive new knowledge. The other problem is with threshold concepts, those major ideas. And the work of Mayer and Land will say that a threshold concept, you either get it or you don't. You can't partially get a threshold concept. You either got it, you haven't. The penny's dropped or it hasn't dropped. And therefore you can't teach half of this year and half of next year. Because what that does is leave the student in what they would call a state of liminality, confusion. They don't know what they're doing. So if you do that, all the student can do is memorise stuff and regurgitate it for the exam, and then not know it the following year. So threshold concepts again um, seem to be at odds with the idea of the spiral curriculum. Um, and here's just one example. We've got three students mapped at different stages in the course. The top student produced a chain every time. The student just memorised stuff. Our students are very good at memorising stuff. The middle student restructured every time. This is the first class on the student. This student tried to memorise stuff, but at this point it just didn't work anymore. She was stuck. Nothing meant anything. And lo and behold, this was the moment she had her exam. And she failed. And then she had to do a reset, and so she was taken to one side, she started to restructure it, and she passed her exam. But again, unless you know what's going on with the English student, you can't really diagnose what the problem is. If any of those ideas are interesting to you, just plug for the book, I'm afraid. Um, all those diagrams and all those ideas basically are summarised in this book, which is now available in all the bookshops and on Amazon at Reasonable Price. And now I'm ready to take the flag. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are keeping excellently to time, which is really good. We've got some time for questions and that uh, to, to the end on comments. Um, I don't know whether you want to take them one at a time. I don't mind. We'll see, we'll see what Does anybody, got, anybody want, to, want to kick off with some question or comments or anything about what you've been talking about? Yes, Mary. Yes. Thank you for that. It was really interesting. If I've never used this sort of approach before, mm -hmm. where would I start? How would it help me? What would you say to me in terms of how this could help me in my teaching? What I would do is, if you're starting, uh, you know, next semester, you're doing biochemistry 101 the first week, and the topic is amino acids. Firstly, you'd say, right, here's a piece of paper, here's some post-it notes, put down everything you know about amino acids. Before I start teaching it, start thinking about what amino acids are. Um, make a concept map. 
and then share it with your, with your mate, just as you did today. So you don't, I, I didn't give you any particular training today in concept map, it took you, what, a few minutes. So you don't have to spend a long time developing what is a concept map and how to do it. You can do that if you want to, but you don't need to. Um, what you can then do is collect those in and just look over them as the, as the kids go out and see what they know. And you'll see that some kids know everything about amino acids because they were really good in their A-levels and they learnt it all and they know it. Other kids will say amino acids are in proteins <coughs> and stop. Now if all of your students know everything there is about amino acids, then the question is why are you going to lecture them for the next three weeks on amino acids because they already know. If the kids know nothing about amino acids, you might want to say, okay, maybe I need to start at a slightly lower level than I anticipated because they don't quite get it. So that's one way of using this. The other way is to show the kids how your module is going to help construct their understanding of amino acids. So what are the links you are going to make in your 10 lectures or however many about amino acids over the coming weeks? Because as I say, most curriculum documents will have amino acids lecture one, lecture two, lecture three, or maybe slightly more, but it's going to be a list of stuff, which room it is and who's teaching it. But how are those ideas linked? Why don't we express our curriculum as a map? People talk about curri curriculum mapping, and mostly when they do that, they still end up with a list. And I don't quite understand why they call it curriculum mapping, because they end up with a list. Yeah, a list and a map to me are not the same thing. So if we can show the students the links between ideas, they get it. If they have to find out the links themselves, they struggle. Does that answer the question? Um, yeah, just a question about, um, I'm looking at the one that you showed us with the art, um, so the different models. Uh, how did you evaluate the complexity of understanding? So you said, for example, the first one knows a little bit about it. So did you have a tool that helped you evaluate that, or is it just based on... I didn't, no. I mean, the, in the literature, there are ways of scoring these things right. if you want to go down that route. Yeah. I don't think it's very helpful, but you can, you can score them. But if you look at that top map, all it says is Foves include Brat, include Durant, include Matisse. It doesn't really tell you much about it. You know, who was Matisse? Why, why was Matisse included? What, you, know, you still don't know what is Fove art after reading that map. Yeah? And because it's that spoke shape, even before I read the content, I'm thinking, he probably doesn't know this subject well because he hasn't linked things around the outside. Whereas this one, there are links all over the place. If you look at the language in this compared to the language of that. Okay, you could argue this isn't technical language, it's the sort of language that would be used in art appreciation. Okay, so wild beasts, alluding to the violence of the strident colour. Okay, that tells you a lot more than foes use bright colours. Yeah? Yeah. So in all these cases, did you give the models to the, to the students or whoever being asked, or they chose, they just selected this from, from memory, or you said choose one of these to describe, like the bigger map? I wouldn't give those to the students. Right. I almost never give a map to the students. I get the students to produce their own maps. <coughs> because if I, I could give that to the students and say, go away and memorise that, but it's pointless, okay, because they haven't developed the understanding themselves. What I would rather have is a kid that produces that, and for me to sit down with him, or to sit down with a friend, 
and to interrogate it and say, well, why did they use colours? What sort of colours? Why was it different to other art at the time? Yeah? Explain. Okay? Exactly as you would when you're marking an essay and someone says, yeah, they use bright colours. And people write in the, in the margins, explain, question mark, question mark, question mark. But you know, can you explain it? You know, what do you mean by bright colours and why did they use them? It's not just that they use bright colours. Yeah? If you write that answer in an essay, you may get a mark, you probably won't. If you write this answer in an essay, you're going to get loads of marks because you've really explored and explained what's going on here. students, and this was the first lesson, you produced this, these maps, uh, to talk about the maps and what they show, and why this is a much better map than the one at the top. Because if you've never seen, if you like, a good answer, you don't know what you're heading for, you don't know what you're aiming for, yeah? So, you know, why is this explanation here better than that one up there? So I could use this in class, if you like, to deconstruct and analyse what these three students said. And if I was going to give a mark, or if you were going to give a mark, what mark would you give these three, three students for these three maps? And how would you justify that? Have you ever used this like concept mapping? I've used it with students myself, and I, in, when I was doing my um, professional diploma in education at the PGC, for the, we had tutorials where we had to use concept maps to show our understanding, and I actually found it like highly stressful, like trying to come up with these links, like you know, and be like, oh, I don't know how that links to that, and for me, I don't think. But I found it quite stressful. But I saw the learning behind it was really quite deep when I, when I got there. I was thinking more from um, in terms of data collection. Have you ever used this method as a way for people to express? Uh, like I liked your idea of picking four and then talking about like for example, I don't know whatever it may be like what is good learning and they pick out four things and then concept them together. Have you ever used it as a data collection method for research? I have, yes. Yeah. And how is it, is it, did you find it effective? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I've used it in various ways in research. Um, I, I used it in, a, in a, a dental school department and I had, I think it was 14 members of staff and I gave them three post-it notes and I said, on the first year course, can you write down the three most important concepts for the first year dental students? And there was almost no overlap in the room. There was no agreement on what the three most important concepts were. Mm. Now the people in the room had no idea that other colleagues had different views of what, what it is we're teaching here. Mm. Because some people had things like how to do a filling or how to cure an abscess. That, because that's what he taught. He taught how to treat an abscess. So that, for him, that's the most important thing. Other people think that have things like ethics is the most important thing we teach. And you think, yeah, but that's not even a major topic on the curriculum. And they said, no, 
but it actually pervades everything we teach here. So ethics is far more important than how to fill a tooth, because we don't want unethical practitioners leaving these, this building. So sometimes the most important ideas are not ideas that are in lecture three or lecture four. It's something that is a given. Oh yeah, of course we do that. But if we don't state that we do that somewhere, if we don't agree that we do that, how do we know we agree that? It's like if you have a department and you say to them, what's the purpose of a lecture? Now in theory you'd think, well we all know what the purpose of a lecture is, don't we? But actually you end up with violent arguments in the department because someone will say, it's about imparting content. And someone else says, no, no, it's nothing to do with that, it's about making them excited about the subject. And someone else says, no, no, it's just about making sure they're on the campus at least one day a week. You know, okay, where do all these answers come from, you know? But actually, people don't agree on what is the purpose of a lecture. And then we're surprised that the students don't understand why they go to lectures. And also they don't understand then why they get miffed when they don't go to lectures. Yeah, do you think this sort of dissonance that you're talking about between different um, teachers is different in different disciplines? So I've done a lot of work with sociology lecturers who, across institutions and across departments, are actually very, fairly similar in what they think they're doing. Whereas I can see that in science, the discussion about what, because I think it's underpinned by values and those deeper things, unite people, even though they're, they're studying quite, you know, they're often Okay, I'm going to hedge my bets and say, partly, I think you may be right. Mm. However, I suspect if you've got a load of these sociologists in a room together and got them to do this task, that veneer of agreement mm. would suddenly disappear, and you find that underneath that is all sorts of different conflicting views. I don't know, I'm just making it up as I go along. But you, yeah. you, you, you can... You know, try it with some sociologists and see if it works. I would be surprised if they are as homogenous a group as you think. Yeah. Because the physicists don't like think they're homogenous that, but groups. But not in terms of teaching, teaching. I'm just wondering if it's different. Because, you know, I have done like focus groups and we have um, done videos of teaching and in different institutions and then got people to talk about their teaching. Mm. And I would still argue there's a kind of consistency in what yeah. people mm. think they're doing. It doesn't mean they're necessarily doing it, but what, in what people believe they're doing, which is a different thing, I think there is quite a lot of consistency. So I was just wondering if it's a disciplinary thing. I don't know, there's a research yeah. project for it. Okay, well thank you very much. I think we've all been excited about what you've said and we'd like to so thank you very much again. So thank you very much. Thank you.